Hi, I'm Matt Dawson and welcome to OrthoScience Bites. Today I'm joined by Dr. Pompey Young, who is the Chief Medical Officer of the American Red Cross. In 2018, Dr. Young was Professor of Pathology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, where she served as the Medical Director of Transfusion Medicine. Dr. Young has over 80 peer-reviewed publications. Her research interests at Vanderbilt were in the field of regenerative medicine using stem cell-based cell therapy and small molecular therapeutics. Currently, her efforts are in the research on blood center innovation, product availability, and safety. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Young. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course. So you know, to open our conversation today with your experience now with the Red Cross, what are the needs for blood and plasma supply during a pandemic and specifically during this COVID-19 pandemic? Sure, that's a great place to start. So the Red Cross collects about 12,500 whole blood donations and more than 2,700 platelet donations just to meet the everyday needs of our patients uh, for the hospitals we serve, which is about 2,500 hospitals across the country. Um, one of the challenges of the pandemic are drive cancellations. And even today where we're at, um, you know, really um, the, the tail end of uh, three, three important surges, uh, we continue to experience drive cancellations, uh, roughly in the order of a thousand drives um, each month, with uh, thirty thousand units uh, not being collected. So you're saying it's um, impacted during the pandemic. So, what type of general challenges do blood banks and donor centers face to their supply and uh, and the demand also as well that's needed for blood and plasma during a pandemic? One of the the biggest challenges that the pandemic has brought is that the traditional methods uh, by which we collected blood have been disrupted. So if you think about prior to the pandemic, we collected blood at businesses, at uh, government offices, at other places of work, at schools, uh, and at, at places of worship. All of these places have had to close their doors and go online. So we've had to completely reimagine where we collect. In fact, if you just look at schools and universities alone, we saw blood con donations collected at these drives drop by more than 50% compared to the year before. And um, you know, not as well appreciated is that by losing our, our school drives, um, one of the biggest impact has been on the African-American donor because education institutions accounted for most of the blood donations from the black community um, and as those went away, um, that really reduced uh, the number of African-American donations. And today, our Black donors make up less than 4% uh, of our donors, uh, making it really difficult to ensure that we collect the right blood product for the right patients, specifically uh, patients like sickle, with sickle cell disease. So that's a challenge that we're continuing to address. But finally, I, I would you know, definitely need to mention that, that the pandemic has obviously brought very specific risks, safety risks to the, the donation process. Um, what we're grateful for is that pretty early in the pandemic, the federal government declared blood donations an essential service and critical infrastructure function. This is critical. The Surgeon General came out uh, on our behalf to encourage people, even though they were stay-at-home orders uh, throughout that that they uh, should come out and, and donate blood and, and uh, help the community. 
So uh, what we did on our end to keep our donors safe and also our staff and our volunteers, we implemented additional measures to ensure that safety. So we uh, implemented uh, checking of temperature of our staff daily, uh, as well as our donors before they entered the drive. Um, we provide hand sanitizer throughout the drive, but also throughout, throughout the donation process. Um, we follow social distancing practices between donor uh, donors, including donor beds, um, and in the refreshment areas. And I think that's uh, pretty been pretty challenging given uh, some of the small mobile sites that we uh, used to use. And then, of course, we uh, require face masks uh, and coverings for all of our staff and volunteers, and, and also our donors. So uh, with the implementation of those, those have been important safety measures that have ensured that, that people can come in and donate safely. That's fascinating. You know, I'm curious as well, have you seen a difference in the demographics of people that are able to donate? So I know in the past, a lot of donations often do come more from, from retired and whatnot. Do you see that as well? It's hard to get people who are maybe older still willing to come out to donate? That's a great question, you know, because uh, if you think about the stay-at-home orders uh, put in place by uh, government officials like uh, governors and mayors, um, most of them really urge the older community to stay absolutely stay at home, right? Uh, try to order their groceries online uh, and not venture outside their home because home was where it was the safest. So that was problematic because uh, especially for a certain uh, types of donations, like platelet donations, elder uh, folks uh, comprised up to 30% of our platelet donors. So that would dramatically impact uh, product availability. Um, so I think, you know, we really uh, messaged to our donors that really it was an individual risk assessment um, uh, that they had to do on their own that uh, yes that the government was asking uh, the older demographics to stay home um, but on the other hand uh, this is a this is an essential service to the community and um, and and that they would have to assess that risk for themselves and we actually saw many many of our older donors continue to roll up their sleeves and come in talking about as well about sort of a, a new product that was sort of created from this, which is convalescent plasma. So how have you gone about trying to identify and find convalescent plasma donors? And are there any you know, metrics or experiences you can share um, about finding donor eligibility or identifying donors uh, for convalescent plasma? Yeah, that that's, uh, you know, one of the success stories uh, for us, uh, not only us, or actually for the entire uh, uh, blood community in this country, uh, if not uh, in other places as well. So uh, just first, just uh, some numbers. So we've distributed more than 150,000 plasma, uh, convalescent plasma products uh, to treat uh, patients battling the virus. So that's really incredible to go from zero to that kind of number in, you know, less than a year. So uh, what we did was that last spring when the uh, FDA came out with the convalescent plasma program, uh, and at the time, uh, there were just really small pockets of infection. And overall, uh, countrywide, the infection rate was uh, you know, less than 5%. So very few people had really uh, had the virus uh, you know, back in the spring of uh, 2020. 
So what we did was we uh, did extensive marketing and media outreach to encourage uh, those individuals uh, who had recovered to sign up on our website. And the site uh, worked to collect vital information such as the diagnosis, uh, if, if it was in a diagnostic test that was done, the date of late symptoms of their last symptoms. And this was a really important uh, information because then our scheduling staff were able to reach out to these donors, confirm the information and schedule appointments. So it was much more of a hands-on activity um, than uh, typical scheduling of donors for, for your typical blood products. Um, in June of 2020, um, one of the, uh, the forces that really helped this process is that we began to offer uh, all blood donors COVID-19 antibody tests. And what this enabled us to do was able to, to identify uh, potential convalescent plasma donors uh, much more passively through uh, just standard evaluating our standard collection uh, test results and take that plasma from routine blood donations that test positive for high levels of COVID-19 antibodies um, and, uh, and be able to manufacture convalescent plasma from those. So, uh, you know, the pandemic, uh, as you know, <laughs> is not over. So we continue to encourage the public to give platelets, um, to get, come in and, and, and give um, blood because, uh, again, we continue to manufacture um, those products that have high levels of, of COVID-19 uh, antibodies. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, identifying uh, these donors, it, it is a challenge. I mean, of course, you know, they need to come in and register. And uh, beyond the, the marketing and the media uh, uh, push, we also partnered with some hospitals and they were able to direct some of their donors to our sites uh, or give them information on how to, to contact us. Um, but I think overall identifying those donors, uh, which really uh, at the beginning of the, the whole pandemic was almost like a needle in a haystack, uh, is, was the biggest hurdle for developing a convalescent plasma program. And, you know, based on the guidelines of what qualifies now from that point, um, how are you able to see based on the, the titers required, how well are you doing at being able to meet that uh, demand now with the available supply? And, you know, interestingly, if you find someone that doesn't quite have the, uh, the titer required for convalescent plasma, um, are they still eligible and can they donate whole blood instead? Yes, we are definitely encouraging them to actually come and donate platelets uh, because convalescent plasma, for the most part, was collected by apheresis. So these, this donor population is very familiar with apheresis uh, process and the apheresis collection. And so it's a natural progression to try to encourage them to continue to be apheresis uh, blood donors. But but. Uh, but certainly, you know, we do encourage them to, to continue to be a, a blood donor, either whole blood or apheresis. Um, and, you know, the high titer requirement certainly does uh, reduce uh, the pool of available units that can be labeled as such uh, to about quarter of, of what it was before. So I think, you know, What's more important is, is you know, would be wonderful is if we could, you know, without collecting a unit, be able to somehow assess if that donor is going to give us, you know, a high titer or, you know, not. Um, and of course, that would be 
kind of the magic test and uh, we don't have that, but th that is a, a challenge today. Sure. So, you know, um, what can you share with our listeners then about any programs you may be running uh, for donor management? Are there new strategies for donor retention? Um, are there things you're doing that maybe other, you know, local hospitals or smaller centers could also think about as they're trying to, to fit donor needs around the country? Well, we, uh, you know, one of the ways we're, we're doing that is um, we are uh, trying to identify community relationships that we can leverage uh, since uh, some many businesses continue to be closed. We're also trying to reach out directly to donors. And so because um, uh, we, we recognize that the days of, of going into a business like IBM and, and, and encouraging all the, the employees um, of that business to donate uh, are likely, uh, well, they're not available today and, and maybe likely never to bounce back to pre-pandemic levels. So we have to really look at, you know, other ways to, uh, to work directly with our donors rather than through a sponsor. And some of that is through commemorative products like t-shirts or gift cards and and those are important things to leverage uh, as we reach out much more directly to donors. Another aspect that we are really working on is uh, trying to, you know, with each donation, a donor gets a mini physical. Um, so they get their heart rate measure, their blood pressure, they, they uh, some of them get iron levels drawn. Um, and uh, more recently, oh, in April 1st, um, and through the end of this year, we've expanded our sickle cell trait testing for, for African-American um, and mixed race blood donors. And so I think these are some data that uh, are really uh, helpful and could be leveraged for public health. And we're working on doing that better uh, through better visibility in our blood donor, uh, our web portal, as well as our blood donor app. Um, so so donors can use that information for uh, to ensure, you know, for, for health, health maintenance. To close up this interesting conversation, uh, what final recommendations might you have to our listeners about the importance of blood and plasma donation during this pandemic? Well, I would tell uh, the American people that it takes less than an hour to donate blood, maybe a little longer for platelets and plasma. And that time is truly life-saving. Um, I think a year into the pandemic, uh, we can all relate to the desire to return to activities that we love, the people we love, the life we love. Um, and frankly, patients who are in the hospitals, who are sick with cancer, who are accident victims, um, also have that, those very same desires. And, and, and by enabling this, this life-saving therapeutic, um, we can help to meet that dream for them. Um, so I just invite everyone to go to the redcrossblood.org and schedule a blood donation appointment today. Great. Thank you so much. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation today with Dr. Young. I wanted to personally, again, thank you very much for this great discussion and your insight and your expertise that you could share with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast episode about our blood supply during a pandemic and what is our role as a society to help overcome the challenges that blood banks and donor centers face. Make sure to review the sections within this podcast description for reading materials we may have suggested. 
Uh, there you'll find materials for further learning and education. So based on today's podcast, I leave you with our pop quiz of how do donor centers and blood banks find convalescent plasma donors. You can always go back and listen again if you missed it. So thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe to Ortho Science Bites, our monthly podcast, where we will be discussing more complex questions we face every day in our labs. Brought to you by Ortho Clinical Diagnostics, pioneering advances in diagnostics for 80 years because every test is a life. Take care, stay healthy, and safe.